follow along with, um, with the sermon this morning, go to your Bible in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the seventh book of the New Testament. Um, I had to, had to think about that for a second. Um, I'm a trained theologian. Which, which book of the Bible is that? Set 1 Corinthians or, your, or on your phone. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Uh, we'll, and we'll read some of that together here in just a little bit. Verses 1 through 8. Um, so about a year into the pandemic, I think it was about a year into the pandemic because I had a dog. We bought a pandemic dog. Did anybody else buy a pandemic dog? You got, okay, all right. Some with you. No regrets yet. No regrets. Not at all. Yeah, yeah we did. Uh, I was out walking, walking Roman, or he was walking me. I'm not really sure which. We were walking down the, down the street from our neighborhood, and, and someone in very large letters, like as large as this set of rugs here, had chalked into the concrete the name of a famous internet conspiracy theorist whose name shall remain anonymous. That's a pun, okay? <laughs> so it's scratching the thing. So I'm, you know, I... I it's like instantly the, the pandemic kind of created this environment where conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists became cool, cool, and the internet kind of helps propagate some of these things. So I took a picture of it, and I and I, I'm not one. I'm just I'll be vulnerable. You don't have to be. I'm not prone to conspiracy theory in general. Okay. So I took a picture of it, not thinking, and I put it on my Facebook page, not thinking twice, and I and I made the comment like. There is a conspiracy theorist in my neighborhood. That's all I said. Okay? Apparently, there is a conspiracy theorist in my neighborhood. And I was so surprised at the number of people who willingly commented underneath my picture how much they loved this conspiracy theorist. Not just that they did it online, but some of the people that I know and love and trust, you know, like that, like how we could be so far apart on something like this. So it sent me down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. And I, I was shocked at just how many there are and how many continue to exist in some shape, form, or fashion in no small part because of the Internet. In 2014, for example, the Anti-Defamation League interviewed, surveyed 53,000 people from 100 different countries. And they discovered that only 30% of them believed what we know to be factually true about the Holocaust. 2014, only a third of those people believed that. The rest believed in some version of conspiracy, all of which have been proven to the best that were available, un- untrue. Okay? In 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first human beings to land on the surface of the moon. Okay? They landed on the moon. But by the 1970s, 30% of all Americans believed it was fake. All of it. Okay. Now, again, if I'm stepping on your toes, don't raise your hand. All right, it's okay. I'm the one that's being vulnerable, not you. You don't have to be yet. 
It, that one's really fun to me. My dad is way into air, way into flying, way into space, and we, we, you know, we have that kind of wrapped up into our home quite a bit. There was a, an author, his name is William Casey. He started to write a book about the conspiracy theories called We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 Billion Swindle. And, as he, and he wrote it as satire. He started to write it as satire, but as he did the research, he actually came to believe the satire. Uh, you know, that was all filmed inside of, you know, a studio somewhere in Nevada. Uh, Holly and I got married in September of, of, excuse me, of October of 2000, moved to Dallas, Texas, lived there for a year, and while Holly was working in the, in the basement of a very famous landmark in, in, uh, in downtown Dallas, um, the revolving restaurant, that's uh, where her office was in the bottom of that, of that building at the Hyatt there. And uh, she was working, and I was not at that time, you know. And um, uh, I was still at school, you know. Um, <clears throat> and, and I was watching. We had you know, an antenna stuck out of the back of our 150-pound television. And I was watching Good Morning America while I was painting. And an airplane flew into one of the Twin Towers, um, and so you, so, which is 9-11. There are still so many people in this country who think that, that 9-11 was uh, either something that Bush knew about or that he even let happen or that he even planned out of, you know, out of greed for oil or something like that or some other thing. I mean, it, I, I was just really surprised. I could go on and on and on. There's so, there's so many. We're going to look today... At a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that, in a way, is very helpful at addressing another quote unquote conspiracy theory, and that is the resurrection of, of Jesus. It's a, I mean, a, you know, airplanes flying into buildings, crazy. Landing on the moon, crazy. The Holocaust, terribly crazy. You can understand the gravity of such an, an amazing series of events would lend itself to say, well, maybe we don't really know, and you come up with all these theories to explain it better so that it makes more sense to your particular perspective or worldview. The resurrection is one of those things. It's a bold claim that a crucified, fully executed by the government buried person would resurrect and walk and talk and eat in front of hundreds of people over a variety of different settings before ascending to another realm. That's what I believe. And perhaps you or someone you know looks at Christian belief at the resurrection with some suspicion, right? With some degree of Conspiracy. Maybe you find the story to be just a little too convenient for those who lay claim to it. Maybe you or the person that you know is just a, loves playing the role of devil's, devil's advocate, and so you want to, um, you know, they just like questioning assumptions and beliefs about everything. And when that is the case, I have found it helpful to do something really simple. Just consider the facts. Just consider the facts. And that's what Paul is doing in this letter at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is considering the facts. This is a church. By the way, if you ever want to feel better about your church, read 1 Corinthians. 
you could do worse, right? This is a church, the early church, the first church, that failed to believe in the resurrection of human bodies, which is a conviction this church holds, by the way. What they didn't understand is that by rejecting the resurrection of human bodies, the future resurrection of human beings, they were, in fact, denouncing the fact that Jesus was resurrected. And so Paul writes this letter in part to correct this false doctrine and to help them understand the implications. And, by, by, and so what he does, he says, let's just consider the facts. Let's just take it back to the beginning. Let's take it to the facts. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is to review and affirm. Those of us who are Christians, I want to review and affirm these facts for us. And if you're not a Christian, this is great because you're getting ready to hear the very like baseline, mere Christianity of what is required to be a Christian and, and believe. Okay? So let's stand together. If you will, let's read 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 with you. I've got the Christian Standard Bible. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, that means the good news, I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, He also appeared to me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you, may, you may be seated. So we're, I'm just going to walk through this passage with you. And I want to I share two or three really main, main highlights. The first, the first thing is this. <clears throat> Folks, we all need clarity sometimes. We, we have these times in our life where we just we need clarity. And that is what this passage serves to do for us. There's, there's circumstances and relationships and whatever you might want to refer to that can cloud our thinking, get us into an emotional state that's, that's maybe not the healthiest it could ever be. And there are just some times in our life where we need somebody to remind us of what exactly it is we believe and what exactly the implications are of that. We all go through moments where we need some clarity. It's okay that the I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay. I'm glad, in a sense, that the Corinthian church forgot how important the resurrection really was because as a result, we now have this clarity. They were in a point in time as a church where they needed some clarity. We're, gonna, we're no different. We, we need that clarity, and that is what Paul is offering. But what's interesting about bringing clarity is how he does it. Look at the text. Verse 1, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. So there are two things that Paul does here to kind of lay out the foundation for the facts that are going to come a little bit later. To give clarity. The first thing he does is that he appeals to their shared experiences together. 
Paul, Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the facts he's getting ready to lay down aren't, aren't separate or void from a relationship and circumstances that they share together. It's interesting to me that he doesn't just go into the facts to help correct their thinking. He goes into their relationship, into the shared experiences and the circumstances that they've had. Several years ago when I, I moved to, to back to Franklin, Nashville, I started working at a, at a Lifeway, at a corporate office in Lifeway. I had a, had a, a wonderful, wonderful boss who's also a wonderful, wonderful friend, and, um, which was 99% of the time was great. Like sometimes your friends can't be your boss or whatever. This, it was just great. All of it was just great. But there was a time, I remember, I'll never forget the time that something happened at work. I got information from him, and it really hurt my feelings because as I remembered it, um, I had now I had been left out uninformed where I should have been involved and very informed along the way in the process. And so I just kind of sat there with my hurt feelings for a little while. I don't know if you guys ever pout. I was pouting. I was pouting like a 40-year-old man should pout. And uh, I'm sitting in my office, and I, so I start drafting this email. It's not going well, is it? You can already tell. I, so I draft this email. I'm like, hey, this is exciting, da-da-da-da. Hey, um, I just, I, I, want, I want to tell you, like, I, I, I don't want to live, I don't want to be passive from last week. By the way, I'm sorry for all the conflict last week's sermon caused about peacemaking. Um, I, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to evade this issue, but I just, you know, my feelings were hurt about this, this, I really feel like this is the way it should have gone. And the email kind of turned into, like, I forgive you, even though you don't even know you did anything wrong yet. And it, it kind of turned into, um, it just it started off like really good, and it turned into more of an attack. Okay, sin. I hit sin, you know, and um, and I'd never had a conflict with him before. And so I sent the email, and then I got one back, and it was so kind and so gracious, and it was full of statements like, "You you probably don't remember, but a here's all the times that we talked about this before." B, here are the couple of meetings that you were actually in, you know. And it was just very gently rebuking the fact that, you know, I was involved and I had no right to feel the way that I felt. You know what I'm saying? So do you see what he did in the email? He appealed to our personal experiences and circumstances together. He included the facts. But it, but it wasn't couched just in black and white. It was... Hey, we're in relationship together. We're on the same team together. We went to these meetings together. We had these conversations together. Do you remember? Do you, do you remember? And that's what Paul is doing in this portion of the letter. He's, he's appealing to their shared experiences. He reminds them in verses 1 and 2 of their time of ministry together, how he preached the gospel and lived among them, how he taught them specific truths, which we'll come to in just a moment. And he reminded them how they positively responded. Did you see that in the text, right? He says, I preach it to you. You received. You've taken your stand on these things. You are being saved by those things. So it's not just about their initial response. It's about how they banked their life on them. And he reminded them of the impact that all of this had on them, both eternally and in the meantime. And he couches all of it in the shared experiences. Nothing can bring clarity to our current mess of emotions or circumstances or experiences like remembering the shared experiences upon which the truth we know was founded in. Very helpful for you and I. If we ever find ourselves forgetting or slipping away from what is actually true. Okay? 
you encountered, if you're a Christian, you encountered the truth of the gospel in a specific set of circumstances, likely in relationship with someone else, likely with certain people, and being reminded of those circumstances, being reminded of those relationships, and the association of the certain truths that were there, that has a way of pulling us back in, off the side of the cliff, if you will. Okay? Drawing us back to what is true. And so Paul is, Paul is doing that. He is modeling that for us. But that's not all that Paul does. No sooner does Paul warmly appeal to their relationships and their circumstances than does he warn them of abandoning the experience and the choice entirely. Look at the passage. He says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you where you received, you took your stand, you were being saved by this. If you hold to that message I preached, unless you believed in vain, see that? So there's, I loved you, I was with you, I was there. You did, you did make this choice, right? You, you did stake your life on this, right? You are, you are going to prove that it's true by holding on to this, right? Because there, there are certain consequences associated if you don't hold. Because if you don't hold, what it means is you didn't really believe to begin with. So the, the verse raises questions, right, about whether or not a person can be a true Christian at one point in their life and then somehow maybe not be one later. The theological word for this is, well, it's, a, it's, not a, it's a phrase, it's called the perseverance of, of saints, the perseverance of Christians. And if you, if you kind of take this, this theological idea and, and stretch it out on a spectrum, um, you will find... Uh, all across evangelical Christianity, you will find a wide range of views on this idea, um, all the way to, man, you could lose your salvation over a pin drop, um, to, no, you, you literally, God will never, ever, ever let go of you, ever, 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 even if you try to get out, okay? All the way, somewhere in between. But regardless of where you land... Both sets of people on all sets of the spectrum, all of those agree that if you don't persevere in the gospel, you have um, no true claim on its blessings and its benefits. Um, And Paul generally assumes that those who confess Christ will remain faithful to that confession, which is why he says what he says in verse 1. But he also acknowledges the fact that some people just don't end up doing so. And so he warns them. He warns them. And perhaps some of us could use a good warning every now and then. Has the warning ever been helpful for you? Have you ever really been grateful for a warning? We had a storm or two come through the other night, right? Anybody lose any trees? Any shingles? Um, yeah, and there's a siren that goes off. And everybody goes and puts their helmets on and gets in the safest room that they can. They take a picture and put it on Facebook. Marked safe in the tornado of 2022, April, whatever. And we did not go on a bike ride. We just, we marked ourselves safe. Why are you safe? Because you got a warning. You got a warning. So we as a church believe in the perseverance of the saints. God is not in the business of saving and then changing his mind. But that doesn't mean that we don't benefit from the warning when we stop believing the truth of the gospel. Okay? So Paul issues a warning. So in bringing gospel clarity to the church, 
Paul appears to their shared experiences and he appears and he, and he, and he uses the consequences of not believing the truth, not remembering those shared experiences. He warns them. Well, not believing what? What is it that Christians have to believe that is so crucial? What did Paul teach the Corinthians that they needed to believe? That's verses 3 through 8. Look with me. For I passed on to you, says Paul, is most important, most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, the twelve. He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, to the one born at the wrong time, He also appeared to me. What is it that we as Christians need to remember? When Paul went to Corinth to plant a church, he taught five things, five crucial things that you and I must believe as well. First, Jesus is the Messiah. Do you catch that in verse 3? For I passed on to you that I received that Christ. It's a messianic title for the person of Jesus. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. Christ. We don't differentiate, we don't separate Jesus from his Jewish heritage. He is the fulfillment of Judaism. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. You need to believe that. Second, you need to believe that Jesus' death was a death for your sins. It was a payment for all the things that we are and do in an affront to a holy and perfect God. A price that we cannot pay, he paid on our behalf. Jewish leaders gave Jesus over to Roman officials and convinced them, used them to execute Jesus on a cross. Their intent was to have Jesus pay for his sin. But in all of it, God was working for Jesus to pay for our sin. So Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus died for our sins. Third, you need to believe that he was buried. Jesus was declared dead understood to be dead and his body was removed from the cross and he was buried in a tomb just like many other dead people of his day. I was a young young pastor in, in South Carolina. Nell Bagwell was the sweetest, sweetest little old lady. And uh, I often caught her in the public grocery store next to the church buying ice cream. Uh, she ate a lot of ice cream. And in her 80s, Nell Bagwell, lived, you know, she was a widow, lived alone. Um, she stood up one, one morning, did not feel well, knew something was wrong, called 911, and, uh, and it called for an ambulance, uh, hung up the phone, made, made her bed, laid down on top, folded her arms, and passed away. It's sweet, sweet. I mean, she didn't want anybody to find her house, you know, in, in, in disorder. That, does that tell you everything you need to know about Nell, right? So I, I get a call that she's, she's passed away, and, I, and she she's, has family in every Baptist church in town. Um, so I go to the local regional hospital, and I'm there in the room, and Nell is dead on the table. They had intubated her to try and resuscitate her, but she did not. She died. She was dead. On the, she was dead on the table. She was dead on the table. And the... I mean, she was so sweet and godly and all the great things, all the conversations were like we were all, it was sudden death. She was not ill in any way to know. But there was all just already kind of a sweetness about, about almost like if you wanted to take up an offering or pass out hors d'oeuvres. Like it was kind of weird how much 
like joy and normalcy was going on with the life. But I can, I, and it was stunning to me because I'm a 35 year old first first time senior pastor, and there's a woman there who's dead on the table. Okay, she's dead on the table, and no one, no one expected her to sit up. When we had the funeral, it was a whole big affair. The whole, I mean, a thousand people involved because of all of her children and grandchildren and all the different churches that came to support. No one expected her to come out of the coffin during the service. We made up. We com- it was complex. Like we, we came up with all kinds of things that you have to do at a funeral and then some because of all the people that we had to accommodate. And no one ever, it never occurred to anybody that she would have to, like, that, that she would, like, put an end to that by coming out of the coffin. They dug a six-foot hole in the ground, and we all stood there as they lowered it into the ground and threw dirt back over it. No one expected her to come out of the ground, and she hasn't yet. Y'all, Jesus was just as dead as Nell, and in three days, he walked out of the tomb. You can't, if you don't believe that, you can't be a Christian. And I need you to feel the weight of that miracle. It's a crazy miracle, we believe, except for the fact that the rest of the things that Paul says. It's not that crazy. It's actually the most logical thing in the whole world. Look, he was resurrected. He did, death did not defeat Jesus because he was blameless. He defeated death. And the fifth thing that, that, that Paul wants us to understand is that Jesus appeared in a resurrected body to people, both individuals and groups and crowds. A crowd ten times the size. Jesus showed up. Hey, y'all. He walked and talked and ate like a human being and did some other weird stuff that we can't do in our normal bodies because he was in a resurrected body. And there were lots and lots of eyewitnesses who spoke to this reality. And then when Paul's writing the Corinthian letter some 20-something years later, there's still people alive confessing and talking and giving testimony to this reality, which is why we have whole Gospels written that account to this reality. So it's not crazy. How many eyewitnesses do you need to believe that something is actually true? I wasn't there when Abby broke her arms yesterday going off the scooter. But there were four or five kids over there, and their stories are remarkably consistent. So I believe it, and now I've got x-rays to prove it. You can believe the, I believe the testimonies of Jesus' resurrection, and therefore I believe it is actually true, even though I wasn't actually there to see it. So there's the five things, Messiahship, atonement, and burial, and resurrection, and appearances. It's interesting to me that these are the things that made up the content of Paul's preaching to start the church, and they're the things that Paul preaches to spur the church on. Put that in your church growth pipe and smoke it. Right? It's nothing new. You don't start churches or keep growing churches by going away from the facts of Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. But notice the emphasis that Paul puts on two things. Number one is the Scriptures, and number two is the power of belief. Paul says... Look at the text. Uh, I pass on to you what I received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Scriptures. And on the third day, He was buried and raised on the third day. How? According 
to the scriptures. Paul is putting together the idea of Messiahship and Jesus and the historical facts of his life, death, and resurrection. It's not just that it happened historically, but that it was foretold to happen historically from the Old Testament. It was prophesied for. Paul wants us to understand that if we really want to read the Old Testament rightly, we see Jesus coming. And if we see it coming, we can not only look at the facts of it having happened, but we can look back at the Old Testament as confirmation that it should have happened. It's the power of revelation. If you want to know more about God, you go to what he's revealed to himself about the word. Paul doesn't want us to leave the Bible. He wants us to show how the Bible points and leads to Jesus. These are the facts, he says. The Bible told me it would happen. And now Paul's, Paul's letters and the gospel accounts are the actual historical records in the scriptures of those things having happened. But the other thing is the power of belief. Don't miss this in the text. The facts of the resurrection lend themselves to the reality that Jesus died and was resurrected. Okay? Just the facts of themselves lead us there, as Paul has outlined them. And it's also clear to me, because here we are sitting 2,000 years later talking about it, that something really did have to happen to make Christians believe in this so powerfully. Look at the impact. Really, just think about the impact where we are. The whole, the whole world is always having to, to, to reconcile with Jesus because somebody, enough, hundreds and thousands of people actually believed that he came out of a tomb. Now, you would think maybe that it wouldn't take much to convince Jesus' followers that he had risen from the dead. I mean, they really wanted him to be the Messiah, right? So maybe this was just their explanation, and they, uh, and they were able to forcefully hold on to it long enough to the next generation to convince just enough people for it to have legs beyond them. But the problem with that is if you read history, Jesus was not the first and he was not the last so-called Messiah to be executed. Even by the Romans. In uh, 66 uh, AD, somewhere in that region, there was a potential Jewish Messiah named Simon. 60 years later, there was another potential Jewish Messiah named uh, Simeon. Both of them were executed by the Romans. Both of them had large (laughs) Jewish followings. And the same thing happened to them when they were executed their messianic movement came to a very abrupt end. Okay? That didn't happen to Jesus. The historical record shows that the death of other would-be messiahs is so counterintuitive to the messianic expectations of the day that some movements can never really recover from it. But here is not the case with Jesus. You would think, based on history, that the death of Jesus would lead to the death of any followers of him, that they would not give themselves to it. But that's just not the case. Why? Because they actually saw him walk around and talk and eat and collab and confab and gab and do all the things that human beings do after he was as dead as Nell Bagwell. That's the power of belief. So I want to leave you with these two things. 
If you're a non-Christian, I have some facts that you need to reckon with. I have convictions of belief that were shared by people who, according to their own testimony, actually saw Jesus walking around resurrected. I have historically accurate documentation of these narratives. Written accounts proven over 2,000 years. This really happened. He really is who he says he is. He actually did what these things say he did. I have facts that you need to be reckoned with. The thing that you need to understand about Christianity is it's not a philosophy. It's not a TED Talk. It's history that you have to reckon with. You either have to supply some sort of conspiracy theory or believe it exactly as what we say it is. Okay? And if you're a Christian, oh, I hope this breaks through the fog for you. Okay? Maybe you have circumstances or relationships or intellectual challenges to the faith, but it all boils down to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah who died in payment for your sin, who was buried and resurrected and appeared. And if that's true, nothing else can change that. Nothing. Just sit on that. Father, we want to believe that initially. Give our life to it like the Corinthian church did. Bank their life on it. Lean into it. Stand on it. Not in vain, but in perseverance. And so we ask as a church that we do just that, that this will be what we proclaim to maintain our sanity, maintain our health, maintain our growth, maintain our witness for your glory. And we ask, Father, that you would, in the lives of people who do not believe this morning, that you would burden them to reckon with the facts and believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.